The words that I'd like to draw your attention to today found in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 25. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Please pray with me. Lord, we love your word. We love your word because it has caused us to be born again, giving us a living hope. Lord, we we love your word because it gives us understanding and insight. And we treasure it above any earthly possession. It is sweeter to us than the honey of the honeycomb. Lord, we have more confidence in it than we have in our own minds or in our own desires. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you've given us your word that we might have insight and understanding, that we might know you, the creator of the universe. But Lord, you, even though you've given it to us, we don't always understand it. We certainly don't understand it to its depths, but we ask that even this morning that you would give us clear insight, clear understanding, not only to, into what it means but what will what does living out your word look like? That each of us individually would see how we need to grow. We'd have, uh, it, particularly in love, we'd have greater insight to know how we can grow and better insight into understanding your will for us individually and for as a church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're a, a bit over halfway yeah, through our study of regeneration, which which really is this this whole sermon series, this eleven twelve part sermon series, is really just a an exposition of the gospel. We began with the fact that we were created to worship God, and then we looked at the fact that we don't worship God because of our sinfulness, our depravity, and therefore Christ has saved us so that we might be born again. And then after acknowledging the, that, we, we looked at what is then the evidences of being born again. How do we know that we have been born again, that we have been saved, that we've been transformed to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And we've looked at the evidence of regeneration being in biblical repentance and holiness. And now today I want to look at regeneration and its relationship to love. Biblical love. And one of the things I want to point out is, is not just that these attributes, holiness, repentance, regeneration, we'll look at submission and hope in the resurrection. Um, it's not just that these attributes, when manifest in our lives, are evidence that we've been born again, though they are, but also understanding regeneration also transforms our understanding of what these attributes actually mean in the lives of believers. Because unbelievers, when they hear these words like love or repentance, only have a limited understanding because they think of these things in terms of just outward expressions. But we know in being transformed by God, he's transformed not only our external actions, but he's transformed our hearts, he's transformed our mind and our desires. And likewise, that affects how we understand these things. For instance, worship is not merely external expressions of adoration, such as coming to church or singing or uh, participating in the Lord's table, but worship is actually um, loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, every aspect of our being. Likewise, repentance is not just stopping 
doing sinful actions. Repentance is being restored to God to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, repenting not only in our actions, but in our thoughts. Repenting in our desires as well. Same thing with holiness. And love also is not merely possessing strong feelings or performing sacrificial actions, but it's selflessly and sincerely doing and desiring what is best for another person. So it's important as we look at love that we define our terms. And I'm going to begin by just contrasting a biblical definition of love with how we understand the the love in the world, the world's definition of love. This comes from um, Webster's Dictionary. You can look it up on your phone if you like. But here's the essence of what Webster says. Love is a strong affection for another arising out of kinship. It's attraction based on sexual desire. Affection and tenderness felt by lovers. Affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests. A warm attachment, enthusiasm, or a devotion. What I want to point out is most people, like Webster's does here, would define love as a strong feeling or an attraction to a person. There's something that we find attractive in another individual that draws us to them. There's something we like. It's primarily an emotion that then results in action. And it's it's primarily at its core. If you look at what's the core uh, uh, beginning of love, it's really self-interest. And this is just opposite of Biblical love. So, worldly love is self-oriented and primarily defined by our emotions. Biblical love is others-oriented and primarily defined by actions. So, let's look at a biblical definition of love. Biblical love, by nature, is oriented towards others. It's, again, serving another's best interest without regard to the cost to oneself. And, and this is conveyed in both the, um, the Hebrew word hesed, which you're familiar with, as well as the Greek word agape. And they're, they're basically um, different, different words from a different language, but they convey the same idea, generally speaking. And, and multiple times, the Bible asserts that the whole law is fulfilled in loving God and others. When we love God and we love others, according to this biblical kind of love, it says, actually, you fulfilled the whole law. Well, just think about that. How can that be? Well, it's in part because when one acts in love, they're acting in line with God's will whose nature is defined by love 1 John 4 7 God is love moreover the love that we have to others is the same love that God has for others as well it's in fact the same love that God shares with the other members of the Trinity and so the love that God commands us to have for others and even to himself is actually the same love that defines his love because it comes from him Again, biblical love means thinking, feeling, and doing in accord with God's love for others. So it's not just actions, but it's thinking and feeling in accord with God's love. And recognize, too, God doesn't love people because he's needy. I mean, from eternity past, God has been fully content, satisfied in his relationships uh, within the Trinity, He simply chooses to take delight in us. And likewise, we love other people when we choose to love them for who they are, not for how they affect us, not for what delight or joy or blessing they bring to us. It's a choice that we make. Moreover, in loving, biblically, one is ignoring their pride. They're ignoring their self-interest which really is the root of all sin, as we've seen. So, um, and this is what the whole law seeks to correct, is our pride. 
And so when Jesus instructed his apostles to consider others' needs as much as their own, he said, when you do that, you will be fulfilling the whole law. He says in Matthew 7, 12, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also them, for this is the whole law and the prophets. So again, my, fo- my point is that focus upon others is paralleled with loving others because both are assumed as summing up the whole law. To love is to be others-oriented. In contrast to worldly love, which says to love is is to be self-oriented. To find something in another which benefits you, that you find delightful. It's the opposite of biblical love. A biblical love, likewise, is also expressed in action. Let's see. So I, I thought I had a slide up there, but it's not there. It's also expressed in action. The, and the danger of thinking love is primarily an emotion, like it's frequently defined, is that we can have strong affection for someone, even for God, and in yet only be loving ourselves. For instance, I think many people assume that they love God because God has promised to bless them. Because God, they're told, finds delight in them and joy in them. And, and he's given them security. And so they, lo- they love God because they see how much God has given to them. But if you think through that, at the core of their love for God is their own self. They love God because of what he gives them for themselves. The reasons are entirely self-oriented. And I think another danger that follows from thinking that, that love uh, is an emotion that, that falls in line with this thinking is that when we fail, it's logical to think that therefore God's love for us has ceased as well. Because if God finds, if God's love is defined by his emotion, his delight that he sees in us, then when we are no longer delightful because we fail or because we sin, or whatever, then he's no longer going to find delight in us, and therefore he no longer loves us. If we think God's love for us is based upon his attraction to us, some sort of worth that he sees in us, because he thinks we're cute, or whatever you want to, whatever you might imagine he loves us for, then when that stops, his love for you will stop as well. And this is the point. God doesn't love like we love. He loves, even though he, there is nothing in us to find lovely. He in, he loved us while we were yet sinners, his enemies. And not only, he didn't, he didn't just have strong affection for us, he died for us. His love was demonstrated in a action. So, biblical love is primarily demonstrated in action. And it's an entire orientation away from self towards the good of the object love. But biblical love does encompass emotion. And, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But the Bible goes out of its way to emphasize the example of love that we're to follow is the death of Christ. In order to emphasize love is not finding delight in another person, having your emotions affected or having your affections inflamed. It's choosing to do what's best for the object of your love. For instance, 1 Corinthians 13, as you read, has no notion of romantic love in it at all. In fact, uh, it's as Dostoevsky would say, a harsh and dreadful thing. I mean, just imagine a job description that said, if you work here, you're going to have to believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, and bear all things. You'd, if that was the job description, you probably had very few takers. Especially, they said, in choosing to do this, you're not going to get paid. You're probably not going to have any takers. But that is what we're commanded to do as Christians in all of our relationships. And that's why biblical love is truly love. It's expressed primarily in the choices, but again, it doesn't mean it's without emotion. I think a a fair way to illustrate is a loving action is like uh, a, a cake, a wedding cake without frosting. So a loving action is still loving, 
Um, but it's missing something if it doesn't have affection accompanying it. It's like the baker followed the recipe, but only up to a point. They didn't follow it all the way. The cake is still a cake, but it's bland. It's, it's, it's missing beauty. It's missing the, the sweetness and the, the, and the opportunity to really give delight to the, the one consuming it. And so is loving action without affection. It doesn't mean that loving action wasn't loving. It's just, it's, it's not enough. It, it's missing. It's, it's not gone far enough. Really, loving action should be accompanied with affection. I think actually the Bible assumes those who love with an agape love in their choice and actions will possess such affection for people. Well, again, the, the, so this is I'm, what I'm trying to do so far is just define love because I think what is what where Christians often stumble in regard to love is they they hear these biblical commands to love and they, and they hear about the God's love for us and yet they instead of thinking of that love in biblical terms they think of it in, in terms like Webster defined self interest emotion and we need to we need to recognize biblical love is very different. Very different. In fact, the opposite, I would say. And now I want to just look at love uh, in, in its correspondence to regeneration. Love is evidence that, that one has been born again. And there's a number of passages in the New Testament that point to love in particular as being evidence that one has been regenerated. And some emphasize the love that believers have for God, and some emphasize the love that believers should have for one another. We'll look at a few. They're on your screen. In, in chapter 3 of John's first letter, he asserts that love is the result of regeneration. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In chapter 5 of the same letter, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And then after reminding believers of their regeneration in First uh, Peter 1.3, Peter notes that even though they have not seen God, they love Him. So there's this automatic, this natural love that believers have for God, but also for others. And then a few verses later, because he says in, in verse 22 of the same passage, and this is the passage I think most strongly connects regeneration to love, is verse 22. And that's the passage we're going to look at today. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And this passage asserts three important truths about the connection between regeneration and love. First of all, it asserts that we have in fact been born again to love. That's one of the purposes of our regeneration is to love. This is profound to think about. Second of all, we're commanded to love. We've been born again for this purpose and therefore we need to do this. Thirdly, we are empowered to fulfill that command to love. But like in, in any, any uh, text we look at, it's important to get the context. So I want to draw your attention uh, to the beginning of 1 Peter, where it, Peter explains how Christ, uh, Christians are supposed to live in light of being born again. Notice in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And everything that Peter says throughout chapter 1 that follows this is set in the context of this is how you should live in light of being born again. And in verse three, thir sorry, 13, he says we're supposed to ha uh, think like Christians with our hope in the resurrection. We're supposed to be holy. We saw that last week in verses 14 through 16. In verse 17 through 21, he says we're supposed to fear God. And then he comes to today's text, verse 22. We need to love one another. So, having been born again, we should love one another. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, 
fervently love one another from the heart. So this brings us to our first point. We've been born again to love. So this first phrase uh, of this verse describes what happened to us when we're saved. It says we have purified our souls. The word purified, like we use in English, just means to be cleansed from, from filth, wiped away of grime. And, but notice also the tense of the verb indicates that it's something that's already happened. It's in the past. And it happened when we were born again. As it says in Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, this is uh, this purification has already happened when we were born again. Next, the phrase describes how this purification happened by obedience to the truth. And this word obey is the same word that we looked at last week in verse 14, where Peter described Christians as children of obedience. They were children who by their nature now obey rather than disobey. And then notice how this text ties into the next phrase, which describes the purpose of the cleansing for a sincere love of the brethren. In other words, they were cleansed, they were born again, regenerated in order to love. And note that the Peter, the, the word that Peter uses for love here, it's a, it's a well-known word. We have a city named after it, Philadelphia, which describes love of the brethren. And it's, it's not a verb. It's actually a noun. You have been a brother love, as it's sometimes uh, translated. And it describes the affection we feel for those who are closely related to or those who are committed to the same ends. Uh, you can think of it as, a, as an a esprit de corps or a camaraderie. The, 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 the love and affection you have for fellow family members or for teammates. So it's sometimes translated uh, familial love. And it really is describing the affection that you have. You have a shared affection because you have a same end in mind with another person. And then Peter expands on this word by saying it's sincere. And the word here is onhupokritos. In other words, unhypocritical. It's sincere love because it's brought about by regeneration. Regeneration enables a person to not just fake love, put on a face of love, a mask of love, a hypocritical love, but regeneration actually enables them to sincerely, from the heart, love. It's real devotion and commitment and affection for one another in light of our common hope and commitment to follow Christ. So in summary, the purification brought about by the regenerating work of Christ is what enables Christians to love one another sincerely. And again, notice that this verse indicates one of the aims of regeneration in the word for. For a sincere love of the brethren. Jesus saved us to love one another with sincere affection. And of course, this is why then Peter says, fervently love one another from the heart. He commands us to love. Now this is the word we're mostly familiar with in the Bible. The Bible's typical term in the New Testament for love, agape. And you're familiar with this, but it, 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 it's helpful to say it, it, it does not merely describe a strong affection and commitment, but it, it assumes action. So it's slightly different from phileo love, but notice they're in conjunction with one another. And in fact, you might even recall that in John 21, in Peter's conversation with Jesus, these words are kind of used interchangeably and synonymously. And the point isn't that they're exactly the same, but they're similar. But I think even in John 21, Jesus is drawing out, these two should go together. If you have strong affection for me, Peter, you will likewise feed my sheep to the point of your own hurt. If you have strong affection, you should also have agape love. 
And of course, the quintessential example of this sort of love is Christ on the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So verse 22 demonstrates that Christians are expected to have brotherly affection, but they're commanded to love because this is the summary of all the other biblical commands. So again, this phileo love, brother love, is like the frosting on the wedding cake. But agape, that we're commanded to love, is like the cake itself. And per, uh, Peter further indicates that Christians are to be fervent in their love. Fervent, the word fervent means to eagerly persevere in some sort of, in, in some state or activity. Uh, in ancient texts, it, it's a, an, a, it describes the tension in the will. Often used uh, uh, in athletic contests to describe uh, either uh, the tension one feels in their muscles or the tension they feel at the end of a race. It means to be tense or resolute, sometimes translated eager. And in the New Testament, it actually is frequently used to describe prayer. For instance, in Acts 12.5, it says the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Luke 22 It describes Jesus being in agony. He prayed more earnestly or fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. So it it connotes this purposefulness, this resoluteness. It's a love that doesn't give up. So it's not talking about giddiness or bubbliness. It's talking about steadfastness, commitment, not giving up sort of love. And by adding the phrase from the heart, there's this double emphasis on the commitment to loving people. Peter's saying, again, the heart in the Bible doesn't refer primarily to the affections, but to convictions, to your thoughts. So he's saying, fix your mind, fix your will on loving people like this. So just like worship and repentance and holiness encompass the entirety of man, mind, will, and affections. Likewise, love, because of regeneration, we are enabled to love not just in actions, not just in emotions, but with all of our being. We can wholly love. Finally, I want you to notice that this command is also an appeal to the will. Peter, because he understands what biblical love is, sees no problem in commanding a person to love. Now, I can't command you to have strong affections for another person. But, the Bible can command you to do something. Because love is primarily an action. But, of course, it should accompany affection as well. If it's true love. And this brings us to verse 23, where Peter explains why we can fulfill this command to relentlessly love one another. He explains that we have been enabled to love because we have been born again with a new imperishable nature. So it's not just like we now know some new information about God. And therefore, in light of this new information, we can now, uh, now we know we're supposed to do good things. And do acts of worship. That's not, that's, not, that's not what this text is saying at all. It's saying, in light of God powerfully transforming you from being a child of darkness to being a child of light. And, and in fact, you've been given a divine nature. Now you have been given the very nature of God in order to love people as God loves people. So you're not just commanded to do these things. You are empowered to do these things because you have been born again. So born again is not just a description of Christians. It describes this miracle that has taken place. And if that miracle has taken place, it's going to evidence itself. And that's what Peter's saying. But then he says you've been born again of not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. And he starts talking about grass and its glory. What is he talking about here? In this quotation, he's quoting Isaiah 40. Peter's talking about the birds and the bees. 
and the flowers and the trees. He's talking, he's talking about reproduction. Not human reproduction, but divine reproduction. And notice what statement prompted Peter to quote from Isaiah 40. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. This point is you've been saved. When we're saved, we have been given a new parentage. We truly become children of God. God causes us to be born as his children. Just like Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, likewise, every Christian is conceived by the Holy Spirit. They're born again, born from above. You now have an eternal nature like God's. In our first birth, we're conceived through perishable seed, being children of Adam, and that, and that we're bound to disintegrate and die. But now, being born again, we're born through eternal seed. And so even though our physical nature is corruptible and will die, our eternal nature will go on living, and actually and then we'll be given a, a resurrected body as well. Peter's already talked about that. And so then in verses 24 to 25, it's just an illustrative expansion of what he says in verse 23. When he says, For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So everything in this earth that's born of this earth, it's going to die. Even in all of its greatness and all of its beauty, all of that passes away. It's perishable. But not those who are born again because they're born of heavenly seed. And what was that heavenly seed that caused him to be born again? God's word, which again emphasizes this is no mere book. The truth that you hear preached to you is not just the words of men. If it's an exposition of scripture, it's God's truth that has power to transform people from being children of darkness, slaves and children of wrath to becoming truly born again children of God who sincerely love people from the heart. It's amazing truth. And also notice that in Isaiah chapter 40, God is proclaiming future hope to the children of Israel. It's that where God says, comfort, comfort my people. It's kind of an introduction to this gospel that's going to be shared in the rest of Isaiah uh, 40 through uh, 66. And the essence of the proclamation is that God's going to save his people. God, the almighty ruler, will save his people. And his ability to save his people is based upon his sovereign, omnipotent power. See, unlike men who are glorious for a moment and pass away, God is not like that. He's going to accomplish all he desires. And recognize how Peter uses Isaiah 40, which describes the permanent nature of God's word, and ties that into the permanent nature of our new birth. Those who are born of the seed of God's word, which brings about the new birth, will live forever. Because they've been given a new divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 But also, Peter quotes Isaiah 40 to demonstrate that the new nature that was brought about through regeneration is what enables us to love people the same way God loves people. God's nature has been given to us so we can love the same way God loves. And you know how God loves? You just sung about it. How rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure. That's how the love within the church should be. And if you've been born again, brothers and sisters, you can love like that. That's why God commands us to love like that. Because we can. He's given us His love. He's caused us to be born again. And this text also reminds us of our eternal security, which is what enables us to risk in love. We can love people the way God loves, who gave up his only son, the way Christ loves, who died for his enemies. We can love like that because, brothers and sisters, we have an eternal nature now. We're promised an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven. We may die in our acts of love, but we will be raised, imperishable, uncorruptible. What do we have to lose? Remember Jesus' words in John 15? 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, than he who has laid down his life for his friends. That's what we're called to love like. Since believers have been born again of an imperishable nature, they can love people like Christ loves. They can die and nothing's lost. In fact, everything's gained. Richard Vermbrand, many of you know, uh, author of Tortured for Christ, a, a Romanian pastor, writes this in his autobiography. I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt have been forced, kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. The same people who are torturing them. Praying fervently for them. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ poured out into our hearts. We can love like this. And, and that's the evidence of it. He, he writes, God will judge us not according to how much we endured, but how much we could love. The Christians who suffered for their faith in prisons could love. I mean, there have been many unbelievers who have been POWs or uh, spies who have been caught spying on the country and they've suffered and suffered to the point of death. But how many of them loved their enemies in the process? See, Christians, not only can we endure torture, but we can love. Why? Because biblical love does not love because it finds delight in the object love. It's because it chooses to. Why? Because that's how God loves. And we have been given His love. We can love with the same love through which He loves us. And we're supposed to. So we need to, we need to recognize when we're called to love, we're not called to, to, to drum up affection. We're called to commit ourselves to another's best interest in light of how much God has loved us. Merman tells of a Romanian pastor, Milan Haimovici. The prisons, he says, were overcrowded and the guards did not know us by name. They called out for those who had been sentenced to get 25 lashes with a whip for having broken some prison rule. Innumerable times. So not just once or twice. Innumerable. So many times that it can't be counted. Pastor Haimovici went to get the beating in place of someone else. Time and time again. Why? Because he was choosing to love. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ, Vermbrand writes, and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. There is a profound testimony from to, to what in light of what Peter is saying here. We can love like this. But we need to understand that's what we're called to do. And we've been empowered to do it. So knowing that we've been born again from an imperishable nature, it frees us to love like this. But of course, most of us are not going to have opportunity to show love like Haimovici did, Pastor Haimovici. In fact, our actions, our demonstrations of love are going to be far more mundane. In fact, people might not even notice it. And, and, and if we truly love them, it doesn't matter whether they notice it or not, because that's not the point. We don't need to be in prison, but we can daily commit to make such sacrifices, to train ourselves to love like this. In fact, just this week, in light of what I was studying, I challenged my family that um, every time we come to the dinner table, for all of us to bring uh, something that done that expresses biblical love. So what have, you, what have you done this week that showed biblical love to another person? And the point of doing this isn't to, to give us something to boast about, hardly. Just not that at all. It's in fact to remind ourselves this is what biblical love looks like. Because how easy it is, especially as a parent. I look at my boys and my heart just swells with emotion. I love them. But my heart swelling with emotion is not biblical love. There's nothing wrong with it. But I show love to my children when I sacrifice for them, when I die to my own self-interest 
for their interests. And that's, we need to train ourselves to rightly speak. Because I like my kids a lot doesn't mean that I biblically love them. We need to live this out. And so we need to train ourselves. Which brings up a question. Well, does the fact that I struggle to love like this mean that I'm not born again? Well, maybe. Certainly no one can love like this in their flesh. So it might indicate that, but I actually think probably not, especially knowing the people in this room. Remember, Peter issues this command to people he knows have been born again. He feels compelled to tell believers who have been born again, who have been able to, born, to, to, to love like this, to love them. So, in fact, this command is repeated throughout the Bible. You need to love like this, both God and others, which tells us that even though we've been enabled to love like this, we need to be told to do so again and again and again and again. So just because you struggle like with love like this doesn't mean that you're a hypocrite. But I think in the very least, we, when we see that we failed to love like this, we need to just acknowledge that it's sin because we're failing to obey a command. And we, just, we need to repent from it. We need to acknowledge this is not how I should have acted Instead, this is what I should have done to honor the Lord. Admit it and repent from it with a resolve to stop acting like that or to start acting like that, depending on what the situation is. And so the reality is we either are unbelievers when we fail to love or we're choosing to live like unbelievers. So it doesn't necessarily mean we are unbelievers because we fail to love, but it does mean we're choosing to live like unbelievers. And therefore, we need to repent. It's not acceptable to fail to love. We're commanded to. Likewise, since regeneration enables us to love like this, though, then... Oh, that question's gone. That's a real bummer, too. Because I had a bunch of stuff. Well, you can take notes. Um, since regeneration enables us to love like this, how can we grow in our love? Well, first thing. We need to recognize the difference between biblical love and worldly love. Again, many people assume that the, the person who really loves them is the person who only tells them nice things. The person who never confronts them in sin, who flatters them, tells them what they want to hear. Um, they emphasize your good qualities. They make you feel good about yourself. But again, those who speak that way, at least in the, New, in the New Testament, those who use flattery are false teachers. Second Peter 2, 2 and 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Paul says, such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You need to recognize that the person who just flatters you or tells you what you want to hear or is only positive to you, there's a good chance that they're just loving themselves. They're using you. They're flattering you, taking advantage of your propensity to sin in your self-interest for their own self-interest. You can really tell a person loves you, biblically speaking, when they're willing to tell you something that's uncomfortable when they're willing to confront you, when they're willing to point out something that you, that you need help in. True love is not self-interested, nor does it exploit people's temptation to self-interest. And this is precisely why Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right? Biblical love, when it's expressed, there's no interest involved. There's no self-interest. Secondly, we need to understand God's will. Because loving a person isn't necessarily doing what they want. 
but doing what is in their best interest as defined by God's word. So loving a person requires that we know what God wants for them. What, what does God's word say is their best interest? So we need the word to direct us also because of our propensity to self-worship and other people's propensity to self-worship. Right? Often, because we often want what's best for us, we will act in ways or even give advice in ways that are in line with what we want rather than what is really in the best interest of another person. So the word brings clarity to our decision making. So we need to have a good grasp of God's will and tell one another what God's word says. But I also want to throw up a caution here. Because there are many people, Bible-loving people, that fail to love people as they bring the Scripture to bear in their life. So I'm sure all of you have experienced people like this who have a love for truth and they confront you, but there's clearly no level of care in their confrontation. They're just wanting to win an argument. They're just wanting to make you look bad. They're wanting to have leverage against you. There are people who love the truth and yet fail to love people. They admonish the faint-hardened, they faint-hearted and the weak, and they don't exercise patience towards anybody. The point is, we cannot just love the truth. We must love people in truth. Both are required. So, loving people does mean telling them the, the truth about what God says, but that, that's not enough. We need to actually care for them to the point where we'd be willing to hurt ourselves to help them do what God has called them to do. Thirdly, we need to discern how to express biblical love to others, right? So the Bible will tell it, teach us what, 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 what God's will is for a person, but different people, just, just, just common wisdom, different people are loved differently. They, they have different needs, Many of you are familiar with the five love languages. Uh, quality time, physical affection, words of affirmation, gifts, giving, acts of service. These are all just expressions of love. And we need to get to know people to discern how is it that they are best loved. So doing those things isn't necessarily love, but they're expressions of love. Does that make sense? So just... Uh, encouraging another person isn't necessarily love. Um, we need to be committed to their best interests first, but it's an expression of it, if that makes sense. So we need to figure out not only what is God's will, but also how can we best help a person discern and fulfill God's will according to their various, various uh, makeups, their natures, their personalities. Fourthly, um, we need to live out regeneration. Uh, we need to die to ourselves. Uh, Romans six ten through 11 is where Paul exposits uh, regeneration. He says, you have been made alive with Christ. He actually says in verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we die to ourselves as a, and make that a pattern of our life, we will get better at loving over time. So we need to understand love requires death to self, just like holiness does, just like repentance does, just like true worship does. And we need to make it a pattern of our thinking rather than allowing ourselves to constantly go back to that default position of what do I want? We need to constantly be recognizing that's not how a believer thinks. Instead, a believer thinks, what is God's will? What is God's will? And the more we do this over time, the easier we'll get to love. And so you wonder, how does a person who's tortured in prison pray for his cat, the, the people who've captured him? Well, it's because over time they have learned they no longer live for themselves, but for God. It's learned. Biblical love is practiced. And, and then unlike worldly love, we can't just play a song 
that stirs up emotions to get us to love, right? You can do that with worldly affection, right? right? You want to go on a romantic date. Maybe you, you turn on a, a, a sweet love song and your heart fills with, oh, yeah, you Ah, great. Sometimes we do that with God. We go to church and we play music to fill up emotion. But that's not biblical love. It's not wrong. But you can't, there's no amount of song playing. There's no amount of movie watching that can stir up, stir you up to love. It, that's, that's actually just manipulating yourself. Biblical love requires confidence in the word of God and um, a will to act. My wife reminded me, it also requires prayer. Of course, we can't do this apart from the Lord. And I also thought on the way in, um, uh, uh, another key that will help us grow in love is meditate upon God's love for you. When you realize how much God loves you and you are secure, as Peter actually cites in, in Isaiah 40, when you understand God's love for you and His and, the, and the, that you have been given a divine nature to enable you to love like Him, then that frees you to make sacrifices, to take risks, to endure, to hope all things, bear all things, endure all things. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can do that. And remembering God's love for us really strengthens our ability to do so. I close with this verse from 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would so fill our minds with an understanding of your love for us understanding the height, width, breadth, length of your love so that we would not just love in our affections or in our thoughts, but we would prove our love through actions to our own hurt. That we would take risks in our relationships, being willing to confront one another, being willing to serve one another when it's inconvenient, being willing to take a loss to our reputation to, to our financial portfolio. Lord, you know the opportunities that are available to us to love. You know the, how we need to be loved. And I pray that you would just help us as a church to do this. That we would not just love in word and in affection, but love in multitudes of actions expressed within our families, expressed in our communities, and, and, and certainly expressed within our church body. Make us to be a biblically loving church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.